go have a good time, and uh, we'll see you after Big Church. And uh, I'm glad all the rest of you are here for Big Church today. And if you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open up to the book of Revelation? And in fact, we're going to be on the very last page of the Bible today. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, I'm not trying to be silly, but uh, that final page number is 1104. I really want to encourage you to have a copy of the Bible open uh, and track through it with us uh, as we study this morning. Revelation chapter 22 uh, from verse 12 to the very end of the chapter. So on these Advent Sundays, we have been considering why it is that Jesus came to us. Uh, Our very opening song this morning, O Come Emmanuel, uh, speaks to the theme that we've been considering on these Advent Sundays. Why was Jesus born? On the first Sunday of Advent, we heard Jesus say in John chapter 6, The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Why did he come? Jesus came to give us eternal life. On the second Sunday of Advent, we heard Jesus say in John chapter 16, The Father himself loves you. I came from the Father and have come into the world. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. So he came to give us eternal life, and he came to give us courage to persevere until we see him face to face. Last week, the third Sunday of Advent, we heard Jesus say in Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He came to give us eternal life. He came to give us courage to persevere in every challenge. And he came to call us to his eternal kingdom. And today, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, we will hear Jesus say, I am coming soon. And all of us will say in agreement, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Today we set our eyes and our hearts on the second advent of Christ. So many people celebrate Christ's first advent without giving any thought to his second advent. And yet the Bible promises start to finish of Christ's return. When we look at the babe in the manger, we should also lift our eyes to the horizon and look for Christ in the sky. It's proper that at Christmas time we would also think about the second coming of Christ. And this is not always a subject matter that we're all super comfortable with. In fact, right now you might be thinking, hey, <laughs> Cody, <laughs> brought some guests with me today. Let's not go off the deep end here. He's normally not like this. Just put your fingers in your ear and say, la, 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 and then we'll go get some brunch. But it is right that God's people, that the church, should be ever mindful of the second coming of Christ. And especially at Christmas time, even though we might think this subject matter is not so Christmassy, it is entirely appropriate that we would think about this. It's right that we would think about it. It's right that we would prepare for it. And how does one prepare for the second coming of Jesus? If you were to Google that, you'd find yourself in some weird places really quick. There's always someone that's going to have something to sell you to help you prepare for the apocalypse. Your tribulation survivor kit. 
You won't need the mark of the beast as long as you have this bucket of yeast. And then they try to sell it to you. I giggled so much when I typed those words out. I was so proud of myself. Well, we, we normally equate the second coming of Christ and preparation for that with sort of these weird fringes, wild-eyed fanatics kind of stuff that's on the, on the outsides of acceptable church conversation, but it doesn't need to be that way. The final words of the Bible tell us all we need to know about how we are to prepare for the second coming of Christ. And the directions that we're given are far more doable and far more powerful and far more Christmassy than you ever imagined. My purpose in preaching this passage today is to help you prepare for the second coming of Christ. And our passage gives us four ways that God's people should prepare. Here at the end of the book of Revelation, indeed the very end of the Bible, uh, chapter 22 covers uh, several different topics. It, it opens with a discussion of the new Eden restored. And then after that description of the new Eden, it, it takes us into sort of this meandering different thoughts. It, it, it's not one solid subject matter. There's two things that the end of the Bible, the, the end of chapter 22, discusses. It talks about the authenticity of this message, this prophecy of the return of Christ. It talks about how trustworthy it is. It also talks about the imminence, the, how soon it is that Christ will return. And we sort of go in and out of different speakers, different ideas that cover those two major themes. But in all of this, over and over again, sort of the unifying thought in it is this is how the church of Jesus Christ prepares for his return. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Revelation 22. I'm going to start in verse 12 and read to the end of the chapter. Jesus is the speaker in verse 12, and he says this, Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city which are written about in this book. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. Amen. So our passage gives us four ways to prepare for the second advent of Christ. How do we prepare for that second advent? First of all, we live by faith. 
How do we prepare for the second coming of Christ? We do so day by day in all of our relationships and in all of our decision-making, living by faith. I told you when we started to read that Jesus is the speaker in verse 12. He says, look, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. And so just to make sure we're all on the same page, who is he? Jesus says, I am coming soon. Who is the one who is coming soon? Well, Jesus helps us understand who he is by referring to himself with six different names. In verse 13, he refers to himself with three names. In verse 16, the other three names. And so in verse 13, he starts with this. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, and also in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, It's God the Father who is identified as the Alpha and Omega. That title, Alpha and Omega, belongs to God the Father. But now, here in chapter 22, the risen Christ applies that title to himself. The title that the church thought was reserved just for the Father is also given to the Son. He's the Alpha and Omega. Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. If you're Canadian, it's A to Z. Jesus is the start, the end, and everything in between. And he uses similar language also in verse 13 when he says, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the start of all things. He's the end of all things. These names set Jesus apart in comparison to the rest of the created order. He is not created he himself is creator existing outside of time and space to call himself alpha and omega first and last beginning and end is to speak of his transcendence how he is entirely utterly other than everything he has created he is beyond us he is greater than us he is God the creator himself He is Alpha and Omega, unlimited by time. Every attribute found in the Father is found in the Son. Verse 13, we have titles of divinity. Verse 16, Jesus calls himself the root and the descendant of David. To call himself the root, that's a weird name, especially if you're not familiar with Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, the prophet Isaiah describes the Messiah's ultimate work of gathering people from all nations to himself. And in chapter 11, verse 10, the prophet says, On that day, the root of Jesse, this is a reference to the Messiah, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. Who was Jesse? Well, Jesse was King David's father, and it is through David's line that the promised Messiah would come. So when Jesus refers to himself as the root, the root of Jesse, he's calling himself a descendant of David. That's exactly what he says of himself here in verse 16, I am the root and the descendant of David. In other words, he's the promised Messiah. He's the one Israel anticipated, the one prophets foretold. He's the one that fulfills every promise of Scripture. When he uses the titles Root of Jesse and Descendant of David, he is speaking to his humanity. 
There's one more name he gives himself in verse 16, and that is, I am the bright morning star. Alpha and Omega speak to his deity. Root and descendant of David speaks to his humanity. Bright morning star tells us something about his purpose. There's a prophecy in Numbers 24, verse 17 that says, a star will rise out of Jacob. The immediate reference of that prophecy is to King David. But here at the end of the Bible, David's greater son takes that title and gives it to himself. To say he is the bright morning star is to promise that the long night of tribulation is all but over and a new day is about to dawn. Question for you. Where else in the Bible do we see the intersection of the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and a bright, glorious star in the night? In Matthew's birth narrative... The wise men were led by a star to see the Christ child. In Luke's birth narrative, the glory of the Lord shines around the shepherds, fills the night sky as they celebrate the birth of the Christ child. John says in chapter 1 that that he is the light in the darkness. So, At the coming of Christ, we see his divinity, his humanity, and the glory of God displayed. Here we are at the very end of the Bible, and I'm telling you, we are staring at a Christmas scene. So who is it that's coming soon? Well, it's Jesus, and he is God the Son who took on flesh. And the next question we would ask then is, what is he going to do at his second coming? And again, in verse 12, he told us, he said, my reward is with me. To repay each person a person according to his work. So once again, we're given a judgment scene. I say once again because the passage we studied last week in Matthew 25 was also a judgment scene. In Matthew chapter 25, we're told of Jesus separating the sheep from the goats. This particular passage, though, describes Jesus separating the righteous who enter the eternal city from the unrighteous who are left outside the eternal city. Look at verse 14 with me. He speaks first of the righteous ones. He says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. So those who wash their robes is a reference that comes from Revelation chapter 7. And in Revelation 7, 14, it describes believers who have remained undefiled by refusing to comply with the demands of the beast. It reads this way. It says those in white robes are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How does someone wash their robe in the blood of the Lamb? Well, the answer of the entire Bible is faith. It is by faith in the Lamb who was crucified that anyone is washed clean from their sin and made holy and pure and welcomed into the eternal city. Those who are clean by faith in Christ are given the right to eat from the tree of life and they are welcomed into the city. But then verse 15 speaks of those who are left outside the city. Look at it with me. Verse 15 says, Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
When it comes to lists like this, we often get very particular. Here are six or seven different groups identified. And, and so we, we might begin to think about, okay, who are these people? Who, who do I see in the world around me that fits the bill? And to be sure, there's something to be learned by considering each one of these groups individually. But if we get lost in those details, we're going to miss out on the overarching intention, which is to tell us that it's all who are unrighteous, everyone who is without faith in Christ, who is left outside the city. We think of the worst of the worst, but what this verse tells us is that it's not just those who we, we identify as the worst, it's, it's all those who have lived moral, good, quaint lives, but have lived as rebels against God by denying Jesus Christ. Who's, who is it that's welcomed into the city? It's the righteous who live by faith. Who is it that's kept outside the city? It's the unrighteous who die without any covering for their sin. And so how then do we, as God's people, prepare for the second coming of Jesus? Understanding we are in relationship with the transcendent eternal God who took on flesh and dwelt among us and who is coming to judge. The answer for you and I this day as followers of Jesus Christ is that we would live by faith. I believe what he said. The evidence of living by faith is living in obedience to the word of God. So in my relationships and in my decision-making, in my holiness, I will live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave His life for me. Living by faith is visible. It is practical. It is not just theoretical. It's not mere intellectual assent. I take Jesus very literal in verse 12 when He says that He is coming with reward to repay each person according to their work. He's not speaking of a reward for the work that leads to salvation. There is no such work on our part. He's speaking of the work that comes from salvation. By our faith in Christ, we are saved to do good works that He planned in advance for us to do, Ephesians 2.10. That's what He comes to reward. So we live by faith this day, living in humility, putting the needs of others before our own fighting against our selfish inclinations, battling against our own sin, that Christ would be exalted and magnified in our lives and in our speech. We live by faith. That's how you prepare for the second coming of Christ. You live by faith. The sanctified Christian is the prepared Christian. How do we prepare? We live by faith. The second way we prepare for the second advent of Christ, invite the world. We invite the world. Verse 17 is a powerhouse. I want you to look at it with me. There are four different invitations in verse 17. Both the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. Who's the Spirit at the beginning of that verse? The Spirit there is God the Holy Spirit. And who is the bride the bride is always the church. Christ is the bridegroom. We are his bride. That's consistent language used throughout the book of Revelation. Now, how are we to understand these four invitations? The Spirit and the bride say come. Let anyone who hears say come. Who are those invitations going out to? I'm going to give you two options, one of which I'm all in on. But we can disagree and still be friends and it's going to be okay. But let me give you the two options 
for who is receiving these invitations. Option one would say this. It would say that there are two different audiences here. The first two invitations go to Jesus, and the second two invitations go to the world. So it would be like, like this. Both the Spirit and the bride say to Jesus, come. Let anyone who hears, that's the church, let us say to Jesus, come. And then the invitation shifts. Let the one who is thirsty, that's those who are outside the faith, the one who is thirsty come to Jesus. And let the one who desires to drink from the water of life come. That invitation would also go to the world. So option one says we've got invitation to Christ Jesus come and into the world. Hey, world, come to Jesus as well. And there's arguments why that could be the case. But I'm an option two guy all the way, and let me show you option two. Option two says that the last two lines inform the first two lines, which means that all four lines are addressed to the world. So both the spirit and the bride say to the world, come to Jesus. And let everyone who has ears say to the world, come to Jesus. Let those in the world who are thirsty come to Jesus. Let the one who desires to take the water of life freely, that's the world, come to Jesus. So it makes sense to me that all four invitations in verse 17 are to the world. This verse isn't begging Jesus to come to us. Jesus has already told us he's coming. So this verse is not about Jesus coming to the world. It's about the world coming to Jesus. How does a Christian prepare for the second coming of Christ? According to verse 17, we prepare by proclaiming the invitation to the world. Of the four invitations in verse 17... The first two are informative for the mission of the church. The second two are informative for those who are on the outside. It is specifically spoken to those who are apart from Christ, inviting them to come in. So let's think first about those first two invitations and the way they inform the mission of the church. They, they tell us the Spirit and the bride say come. So God the Spirit has a message for the world. And that message to the world is come. Come and drink. Come and eat. Come find eternal life here through faith in Jesus Christ. And that message is proclaimed to the world how? Through the bride, the church. And so this is the mission of God the Spirit fulfilled through His children in the church together with one unified voice in the power of God the Holy Spirit. We say to the world, come to Jesus. That's the mission of the church. And then the second line, let anyone who hears say, come. Let anyone who hears share in that proclamation and make the invitation to the people in your life. Do you have ears? Did you hear the word of God this morning? You fit the criteria. He's speaking to you. Let everyone who hears, every child of God, let them who hear say, come. This is the mission of the church to reach the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ. Many churches and many Christians can get so very hung up on end times matters. I know some Christians who are very serious about the Word of God and they love Jesus and they are eat up with end times theology. Nothing wrong with having that as an interest. Nothing wrong with having a certain school of theology that you subscribe to. 
Nothing wrong with doing research and studying these things and being curious about the events around the return of Christ. But if I could be frank, I find that all of our debates on these matters are a colossal waste of time when we have been told clearly by the final words of the Bible that we are to give our lives to the proclamation of the gospel to every nation on earth. Leave the debates for someone else, somewhere else, probably someone who has a book to sell and a TV program they want you to watch. The work of the church is to say to the nations, come to Jesus Christ today, the time is urgent. The moment is now for your salvation. How do you prepare for the end of all things, the return of Christ? Forget your timelines. Christ alone knows the time and the day. It is for us to be about this invitation. This is the mission of the church is to make Christ known. How can you tell people that you are serious about the end times? Here's how. That every resource in your life is put towards the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That your bank account gives evidence that your resources are going to see the gospel spread through missionaries around the world. That your life is lived with intentional conversations, leveraging people towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how the Bible says we will know that we're serious about this matter. If you are serious about the end of all things, and if you are all about eschatology, brother and sister, you will be a soul winner through and through. Let everyone who has ears, who hears this, say come. That's all of us, church. Those first two lines, those first two invitations, they speak to the mission of the church. But the third and fourth lines, they're a little different because they are spoken as if the reader of these words does not know Jesus. The thought is that there is someone who will be reading the prophecy of this book. And they will get to the end and they will need to hear the words of our Lord to them and say, come. If you're thirsty, come. You want to drink the water of life? You've got it. Come and drink to your heart's desire. You know, we just read a moment ago verse 15, which speaks about those who are outside the eternal city. And that may seem like harsh language. Until you realize that the voice of God the Spirit, along with His church, to those outside the city is come inside, come to Jesus. The names listed in verse 15, those groups of people are those who are targeted with this invitation. God has people yet among them. And so Jesus' posture towards those on the outside is not to close the gates and secure them with locks in a moat. Jesus throws the gates to the eternal city wide open and he calls to you to turn and come to him. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? I'm not asking were you baptized as an infant or are you a moral person or are you better than a bad person? Is Jesus Christ the center of your life? Have you left everything for him? Do you possess a burning faith in Jesus Christ? If not, you have to hear his invitation to you this morning, and it is come. The Alpha and Omega, the God who created all things, knows you by name, and he says to you, come. He doesn't say, go away. He doesn't say, stay outside. He doesn't say, do your best. He says, come to me. 
Because I came for you. No one has loved you the way Jesus has loved you. And you don't have to live in spiritual thirst any longer. Today, if you will turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, you'll be brought into the eternal city and given a right to the tree of life. His invitation is an urgent one. And the urgency of the decision requires action now. So, friend, I I want to implore you to drop everything and run to Christ with the same urgency as if a tornado is chasing you down the street, run to Christ and by faith trust in Him for your salvation. You cannot wait another day. The greatest moment in history has come and it is rushing forward towards its conclusion and the Son of God is calling to you, come. So often, so many people We're like a man in a desert. And we're dying of thirst. We would give anything for a drink of water. And one day that man stumbles upon a well and he lowers the bucket and he brings it back up and he finds it filled with silver and gold. And he thinks to himself, what a colossal waste. What good will this do me? We all know what it is to be spiritually thirsty, to try and quench that thirst with the things of this world. And at the end of the day, dollars and pennies aren't going to get it done, and a reputation isn't going to get it done, and possessions and toys won't get it done. What satisfies our parched souls is the living water. It is Jesus Christ himself. And if Christ ruled in you, your life would be radically different. He invites you to come to him today so that you can eat from the tree of life, be welcomed into the eternal city, and know eternal life. How do we prepare for the return of Christ? We live by faith. We invite the world. Third way we prepare for Christ's return is we preserve the gospel. Verses 18 and 19 are a serious warning against adding or taking away from the prophetic message of Revelation. I want you to look at it with me. Verse 18, John writes, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city which are written about in this book. So the question we have to ask up front is what book is this warning referring to? Well, there's two ways of thinking about this question, two ways of answering it. First and foremost, it is speaking specifically to this book of prophecy, the book of Revelation. When John recorded these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wasn't holding the Bible the way you're holding the Bible this morning. He didn't have all of that. And so when he says not to add or take away from this book of prophecy, he means specifically this work, the book of Revelation. And it's not uncommon in the Bible that we would find similar warnings for other divine words from God. Uh, We find in multiple places where God speaks to his people and then a solemn warning is given, do not mess with the message. Don't rewrite it. Don't take away from it. Don't add to it. 
bad things are going to happen if you do. And so here is another one of those warnings that the book of Revelation, this prophecy that speaks of the coming of Christ and the power of faith to save all those who believe, this message must not be messed with. That being said, the book of Revelation contains over 500 references to the Old Testament. You'll find Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Psalm, Proverbs, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Jeremiah, Job, Joel, 1 Kings, Ecclesiastes, and Hosea, all spoken of in the book of Revelation. And there is one singular consistent message that runs through every book of the Bible. That message is that salvation is found through faith in Jesus Christ. Thus, we would be wise to take this warning about the book of Revelation and extrapolate it to the rest of the Word of God as well. Anyone who corrupts the gospel of Jesus Christ will meet the terrifying judgment of God. How do we prepare for the second coming of Christ? We hold fast to the gospel. We hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ in every generation of the church, in the face of every challenge, every dictator, every threat, every insult. We hold fast to the message that brings the dead to life. It's the message that brings outsiders into the holy city. It's the message that turns the unrighteous into holy ones. It's the message of hope in Jesus Christ. We do not mutilate it for the sake of political power. We do not mute it for the sake of cultural approval. It is of eternal importance that we believe and speak the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unaltered, as given to us by the apostles here in the Word of God. We must hold to the gospel firmly and preserve it. So how do we prepare for the second coming of Christ? We prepare by living by faith, inviting the world, preserving the gospel. Fourth and finally, we believe His promise. We have to believe his promise that he's returning. The final words of the book involve Jesus who says, yes, I am coming soon, and the readers or the church who say, amen, come Lord Jesus. And I wonder if this is the place where you gently roll your eyes and say, mm, 2,000 years, <laughs> I'm coming soon. What qualifies as soon? This is not soon as I understand soon. So maybe he isn't coming. Or, or maybe it's just not going to be what we expect. Or maybe this is just metaphorical language. Uh, who knows what he really means? It's obvious the, the statute of limitations is up. And no longer can we say, oh, we believe he's coming soon. The Bible is full of people who gave up on the promises of God and then were amazed when God still kept His promises. The Bible is full of eye rollers who carried for generations and centuries and millennia the Word of God, promises from Him, and felt like, ah, it's not going to happen, not going to go down the way I thought it would go down, and then God still has kept his promise. So for example, God's people waited for many, many centuries before the promised Messiah was born in Bethlehem. And Luke chapter 2 tells us that everyone who heard the shepherd's report were amazed. And Mary and Joseph likewise amazed at what was said about their son. Another example, the followers of Jesus waited for three grueling days after his death. 
And although he had told them over and over that he would be killed and he would rise from the dead, they didn't understand or they didn't believe or all of that and more. And Luke 24 tells us that when he appeared to his disciples in the upper room, risen from the dead, they were amazed. Another example, the world had waited since Genesis chapter 12 for God's blessing to come to the nations. And finally, in Acts chapter 2, God the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples and the gospel was proclaimed in so many different languages. And thousands came to faith in Christ in one day. And Acts chapter 2 tells us that those who witnessed these events were amazed. They're amazed that the promised Messiah was born. And they're amazed that the promised Messiah was risen from the dead. And they're amazed that the promised gospel of the Messiah saved all those who believed. And here we sit like so many doubters thinking there's something wrong with Christ's timeline. But he's kept every promise. And so why would we doubt this one? O ye of little faith, hear the words of Jesus, yes, I am coming soon. One day that trumpet will sound and the sky will split open and Christ will return physically, visibly for his church and we will be amazed one day. And until that day, the church prays what I think is the most hope-filled prayer in all the Bible. Three profound words. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, is a prayer to end all death, all disease, all war, all famine, all abuse and suffering of all kinds. It's a prayer for the restoration of Eden. It's a prayer for the healing of the nations. It's a prayer for us to be brought before his glorious throne to praise him forever and ever. It is the prayer of hope. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. How does the church prepare for the second coming of Christ? We prepare by living by faith, inviting the world, preserving the gospel, and believing his promise. And so this Christmas, it is proper for me to ask you, is your soul ready for the second advent. And your soul may not be ready. One of my favorite writers, Brennan Manning, described the lack of soul readiness at Christmas this way. He writes in his book, uh, The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus, the crisis of Christmas is truly a crisis of faith. Many will continue to ignore the invitation, dodge the truth, evade reality, and postpone the decision about Jesus. The insensitive will eat, drink, and be merry. The superficial will follow social customs in a religious setting. The defeated will be haunted by ghosts from the past. And the victorious minority, who are not intimidated by the cultural patterns of the unbelieving majority, will celebrate as though Christ is near, near in time, near in place, and indeed he is. Amen. If you feel that your soul is not ready, there's sweet encouragement for you in the closing words of the Bible, verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. The grace of the Lord is with you. 
to save you when you turn to him and trust in him, to restore you when you return to him, to strengthen you when you shelter in him, and to love you when you hope in him. And so this Christmas, may you hold his first advent and his second advent together. As you celebrate the first advent, may you hope in the second. At his first advent, he came in weakness, but next he will come in power. At his first advent, he came in poverty, but next he will come with the wealth of heaven. At his first advent, he came in humiliation, but next he will come in glory. At the first, he came as the lamb, but next he will come as the lion. And the church says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Together we pray, come Lord Jesus, you God the Son, Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and end, the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star, we join with our brothers and sisters around this world and through every generation of your church and we say, come Lord Jesus, come. Because we're tired, we're tired of the sin that ensnares us, we're tired of our own brokenness and failings. And we're tired of the impact of sin and brokenness on the world around us, the decay we live in and under. And our souls are tired of the hurt we carry and the hurt we witness, people we love who struggle in so many ways. Come, Lord Jesus. And Lord, as we voice that prayer, we also voice our trust in you and in your perfect timing. And so until that day, may we live with urgency as we make the gospel known, as we strive in our own holiness, and as we hold fast to the gospel. God, let that urgency mark even this Christmas season, that we would take the opportunities put before us to walk with people we love towards the cross of Christ. So Holy Father, make us a church prepared. Ready us for that second advent. Make us like you. And I pray for my friends in here that don't know Christ as their Savior. God, let this be the day that they go from outside the city to inside, from spiritually parched to drinking freely the water of life. Give them their place at the tree of life, their place in that holy, eternal city, that by faith in Christ, their lives will be radically changed forever and ever. Thank you that that's the testimony of so many in this room who have made Christ the center of our lives. Lord, bring salvation today to those who trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's sing the gospel.